Father, we're thankful that you loved the world enough to send your only Son. You uh, sacrificed by giving him up, and that great relationship that you shared with him uh, four times so that he could come to this earth and be humiliated for our sake, so that he ultimately could die for our sake. And one day, our Savior is coming back. We look forward to that day. And what a day that will be. We pray that that day would come quickly. Lord, during the time between now and then, we ask for your help as we seek to live for you and to please you, thankful that it is possible to please you, and that you are our loving Father who will not abandon us. Help us tonight to consider our ways, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turning away from God after having great privilege is very subtle. That is, there could be a person or group of people who have uh, received great blessings from God, even experienced some of the presence of God, and and then uh, turn away from Him over time. And that kind of movement from being in a community of people where God's blessings are experienced and and then moving out of that and actually moving away from God, turning their back on God. That, that is a subtle shift. For Corinth, a subtle turning away starts right here with what we've been talking about the last couple of chapters, which is that, that they are misusing their freedom. They cling to this freedom. We have this freedom in Christ. We can eat meat sacrificed to idols. But when they misuse that, when that freedom becomes a badge that they wear, I can do whatever I want, rather than something that they uh, willingly give up for the sake of a, a, a weaker conscienced brother, then that's when the uh, idolatry takes place. That's when the shift starts to happen. And before long, they've turned away from God. Now, it sounds hard to believe that someone who experiences all the blessings of God could actually turn away from God. And when I say all the blessings, I mean they experience some of the blessings of God. They, they have some taste of, um, of the goodness of God, like Hebrews talks about. But as we're going to see in our passage tonight, that is exactly what, what can happen and what, what we must avoid. In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul began a new topic that he will continue all the way till chapter 11, verse 1. Remember, he's responding to questions primarily in this section of the letter. And so he says in chapter 8, verse 1, concerning things sacrificed to idols. There in chapter 8, he said there's nothing inherently sinful about eating meat sacrificed to idols, but if I do it without regard for my brother and his conscience, then I sin against him and I sin against God. Therefore, we must be willing to give up our freedoms, our personal freedoms that we rightly have for the spiritual well-being of our brother. Then in chapter 9, Paul gives an example of doing that. He says, I had the freedom, the right, the liberty to take a wage for my preaching. That's what churches ought to do. But I willingly gave up that right. I refused to be paid. Why? Because I was considering the, the well-being of my, the spiritual well-being of my brothers. I wanted I didn't want anyone to think that I was peddling the gospel, that I was uh, using the gospel for money. So I was laying a foundation for future pastors effectively who would be able to get paid. But I'm I'm not going to take it, Paul says. 
Then at the end of chapter 9, Paul gives a summary model by which he lives, and that is that the gospel is his highest priorities, his, his highest priority in life. That is, I have become all things to all men so that by some means I, so that by all means I might save some. Verse 22. Paul knew that when the gospel was his highest priority that he would be willing to give up personal rights and to embrace hardship. And we should follow that kind of example. Here in chapter 10, Paul concludes his thoughts on eating meat sacrificed to idols. We're not going to cover the whole chapter tonight, but we're going to start. In our passage... Tonight, he's going to warn the Corinthians about the danger of turning away from God. The fact is that that how they think about this issue of eating meat reveals what is in their heart. This is not just a non-essential, unimportant issue that they can kind of, you know, you can give or take whatever, whatever you feel like, do it. Their eating meat could actually subtly shift them off the path towards heaven and move them on the path towards an eternal hell, towards idolatry. In other words, we can, uh, we can take this claim of freedom and turn it into an opportunity to, to worship a false god. And, and the fact is that God will not tolerate idolatry. We, we might say we have all these freedoms to do whatever, but, but when we engage in when our hearts desire and engage in idolatry, then, then God will not tolerate it just like He did not with Israel. And what we need to recognize is that there is a real possibility that those who experience the privilege of God's presence and blessing could fall away and be destroyed. And so this is a very sobering passage tonight. Let me read it for us beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The reality of Israel's turning away from God warns us that we must humbly depend upon God. We must humbly depend upon God. We'll break this down, this passage down into two parts. First, Israel's pit, pitfall was that they turned away from God despite receiving great privilege, verses 1 through 11. And then second, we must hum- humbly depend upon God, verses 12 and 13. So, 
Let's learn from Israel. That's what Paul's doing with the Corinthians. Is what I think we should do as well. Let's learn from Israel's negative example and don't fall into the same trap that they fell into. Instead, we need to, to humbly depend upon God. In other, in other words, we need to respond with humility and, and trust. So first, Israel's pitfall was that they turned away from God despite receiving great privilege. They turned away from God despite receiving great privilege. The great privilege that Israel received is seen in verses 1-4. through four. Paul begins this section with the word for, which connects his argument to chapters 8 and 9 that I just summarized, showing that there's an example here of the old, in the Old Testament that we can learn from. That, that there were many in Israel who had access to God but were disqualified. And so what privileges did Israel have? What, what does the text tell us? What kind of privileges did Israel have? Help me out. In verses 1 through 4. Okay, they were all under the cloud. What does that mean? Okay, which cloud are we talking about? We're we talking about, yeah. We're, so we're talking about the presence of God, right? The glory cloud that that led them in the wilderness. So they all experienced that. It's not like, you know, some were kind of hiding in their tents, going, "Oh, I didn't know we had God in our midst." They were all led by the cloud. What what's next? Pass through the sea, which is talking about what? Going through the Red Sea. Right, the, perhaps the most powerful miracle in the Old Testament. So they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. What about verse 2? Okay. Prior to that, the beginning of the verse, we'll get to that in just a second, Paul. They, they were all baptized into Moses and in the cloud, in the cloud and in the sea. So this is a little bit different, difficult um, phrase here, baptized into Moses. We don't uh, really see this any other place in Scripture, uh, we think about being baptized in, with John's baptism or baptized by Jesus, or we have the Spirit baptism, but, but what is this baptized into Moses? And I think this is referring to uh, a union with Moses. That is, that, that when Moses met with God, notice the, the prepositional phrases there, in the cloud, when Moses met with God in the cloud, then they met with God. As their representative, Moses... Uh, they, they are united with him in that sense. Or, as Moses passed through the sea and was delivered, so they were delivered as well, right? So, then, verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Here's another privilege that Israel had. And this is another kind of difficult way that Paul states this because when we talk about spiritual food, we're talking about what? We're talking about the Word of God, right? That we want to devour the spiritual food of the Word. Um... But more likely here, it's referring to the food that, that uh, comes from the Spirit or the food that comes from heaven, which was the physical food of manna and quail. And the reason I think that is because of this fifth privilege that they had, which is the spiritual drink. Notice where it came from. This spiritual drink, we don't talk about spiritual drink as much, but here a spiritual drink came from a spiritual rock, and this rock was Christ. So I think that's talking about a specific time when the water came from the rock, and what, what, Moses, what Paul is now saying is that they should have seen 
that the source of their water, physical water, was the rock. Is there truth in that? That the water actually came from the rock? Yes. How about this? The source of their water, their physical water, was Christ. Is there truth in that? Yeah, Christ is the source of their water. So, so this serves as, for them, a, a type or an example. That is, that, that Christ was that rock that supplied for their needs. He was the, the source of their food and their source of their water. So they had all these great privileges. That's the point. They, they had seen God's presence. They, they had seen Him move through the glory cloud. They had seen Him delivered. They had seen Him provide. But notice verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Most of them were dis- displeasing to God and were judged by God by being laid low in the wilderness. The point is that they saw the works of God. They saw Him provide for them. They saw Him deliver. And yet they still fell. And the point is that they did not have genuine faith. Notice how many of them with most of them, verse 5 says. Out of the hundreds of thousands of men and women who saw the plagues and the Red Sea and the providential supply of manna and water and quail and military victory and abundant produce through the eyes of the spies in the land of Canaan, only a handful of adults actually believed in God. Now, the next generation would come up And they certainly were, many of those were a part of that deliverance as well. So they had seen a lot of it as well. But what I'm talking about is the adults. Out of the hundreds and thousands of adults, hundreds of thousands of adults, there were only a handful who actually believed in God. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Joshua, Caleb, perhaps a few others. So, Yet, despite all this privilege, nevertheless, verse 5, they turned away. They were not pleasing to God. The implication that Paul seems to be making for the Corinthians is that they, like Israel, are recipients of God's great privileges, right? That they had participated in a lot of this special blessing of God and maybe even some of this spiritual food and drink, which... Paul may be referring now to, to the Lord's Supper. But, but, but do all these things guarantee salvation? Does great privilege, hanging out with the people of God, does that guarantee eternal salvation? Well, let's go back to Israel. Did all that great privilege guarantee eternal salvation for them? They tasted of those things and they were not satisfied. So, we need to learn from Israel. Their negative example. We, we must avoid the pitfall of Israel in verses 6 through 11. In verse 6, we must not crave what Israel craved. Now, these things happened as examples, literally types, for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. 
So we dispensationalists understand that the law of Moses was not meant directly for us. Right? We are not under the law of Moses. The law of Moses was for Israel. The law of Moses has been fulfilled in Christ. And so we are no longer under the law of Moses. But that does not mean that we can just throw the Old Testament and its law away. Instead, we see here in verse 6 something that we already know, but we need to be reminded of, and that is that the Old Testament is designed for our learning, isn't it? Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And, and that's why, one of the reasons why I love to study the Old Testament. One, it's often neglected, you know, and, and it, it's easier to, to preach through and study through the New Testament. And the Old Testament is often neglected, and yet it's full of great and helpful, positive and negative examples of believers who are facing a lot of the same kinds of challenges that we face, right? And so these negative examples in the Old Testament help to warn us and the positive examples help to encourage us. So Paul says we, we should learn from that. We should learn from Israel's negative example here. In, in verses 7 through 10, we have a, a four-part command or prohibition. It's really one command in verse 7, but it's continuation. So notice verse 7. Do not be idolaters. And then he talks about that. Verse 8. Nor let us act immorally. Verse 9 nor let us try the Lord. And then verse 10, nor grumble. So do you see the four-part command or four-part prohibition? Don't, don't be an idolater. Don't act immorally. Don't try the Lord and don't grumble. Those are the four ways that we can learn from Israel, that they had the wrong kinds of cravings. They acted out uh, against God. So Paul takes their negative example what they did in the wilderness and applies it to New Testament believers in four ways. First, the sin of idolatry in verse 7. The sin of idolatry. Don't be idolaters, verse 7 says. And some, As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. This quotation is taken from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. I think it's verse 6, might be verse 8. Verse 6. This is uh, one month after they had been delivered from the Red Sea, had been delivered from the Egyptians. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to receive the tablets, and what are the people doing down below? They're making for themselves a golden image, a golden calf. Idolatry. And, and along with this idolatry, it was not just, we need something to bow down, kind of like the Nebuchadnezzar idolatry, where here's a, here's a statue, now everybody get on the ground and bow down to it. It was more than that. And that's what this quotation is about. The people sat down to eat and drink, so there's some kind of eating and drinking, very like, likely getting drunk. And then notice they stood up to play, which is a euphemism for gross immorality, which in the pagan world, that's how it works. Idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. The immorality actually happens right there in the pagan temple in a lot of cases. And really, the, 
the idolatry in a lot of ways is is designed to encourage and allow them to feed their desires in that way. And so here's Israel who looks no different than the pagan nations around them doing something that was clearly prohibited by God. And Paul says they craved, verse 6, they, they had these evil things that they craved. They craved following after another God. So they made a God of their own. The sin of idolatry. Secondly, the sin of immorality, verse 8. The second warning that Paul gives here is the sin of immorality, which ties into the last part of verse 7, as I just mentioned. But in that case, there were about 3,000 people who died. It's a rounded number. There's another case here in verse 8 that seems to fill up the other 20,000. Notice verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. So, um, if you go back to the story of Moab, remember the story of Moab? We haven't gotten there in Numbers yet, but it's in Numbers chapter 25. And uh, people actually commit immorality with the Moabites. And uh, as a result, 24,000 people die. So, it could be that he's rounding down to 23, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Or it could be rounding down to 20,000 and then adding the 3,000 from from Sinai. Whatever the case, the point is that immorality is opposed, is, is in opposition to God and God judges it. Number, uh, number three, the third sin is the sin of testing God. Verse 9, the sin of testing God. Nor let us try or test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpent. So what are we talking about here? This is in Numbers 21. Again, God had already delivered them in multiple ways. He was still providing food for them on a daily basis. And in the immediate context, the beginning of chapter 21, God actually delivers them from the Canaanites. But the people grumble again against Him, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Doesn't that sound familiar? We're seeing that in our study of Numbers and uh, this this will happen again later, Numbers 21. And they say, For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. I love this kind of contradictory statement. There is no food or water, and we loathe this miserable food. So you do have food, but you don't like it. And this time, instead of grumbling against Moses and Aaron, it actually says that they grumble against Moses and God. So now they're, getting the, they're putting the blame where they were really directing it all along, but, but they're actually willing to admit it. The result of that is that the Lord sent venomous snakes to bite the people so that many died. And that's what it's talking about there at the end of verse 9. They put God to the test. They didn't believe His promise. They didn't appreciate His provision. They didn't think that He had the power to give them what they wanted. It wasn't about that. So God... Um, caused many of them to die in this way. The fourth sin is the sin of grumbling in verse 10. This is a an example that probably comes from two places, Numbers 14 and Numbers 16. Let's read the text here in verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Um, most likely it's from Numbers 16 at the very least, but, but it could also include Numbers 14. Number four, numbers 14 is where the people, uh, the spies were going to enter the land 
or we're going to get a report of the land so that the people could enter, and they come back with a with a bad report. They don't think that God has the power. And so they start to grumble against Moses. Why did you bring us out here? And they get the whole congregation to do the same. Well, God's going to judge those spies, right? And that's what he does. He kills them all on that day uh, with the plague. Well, that a similar thing happens, as we'll see here in a couple of weeks. Number 16 is the story of Korah's rebellion. And they rise up against Moses and Aaron and say, Hey, isn't God among us as well? Doesn't God speak to us too? And God says, let's, or, or Moses says, let's see whose side God is on. And God opens up the earth and swallows them whole. So, Israel had these evil cravings, as verse 6 describes, the sin of idolatry, the sin of immorality, the sin of testing God, the sin of grumbling. So these cravings came out in their sins. And so their negative example serves as, as a help to us. Verse 11 again repeats that idea. Remember, verse 6 says, these are, happen as examples for us. Verse 11 says, now these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. So let's try to bring it back now to Corinth and think, in what ways was Corinth guilty of these four sins? Why would Paul bring up these four examples in Israel's history? Was there any kind of idolatry that might have been going on in the church at Corinth. Well, that's what's going on here in chapter 10. We're going to get to that. So we're, um, that's what we'll see in the next couple of weeks. But, but that's going to be exposed. That you're actually drinking the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons and thinking that that's okay with God. And, and that's not okay. How about immorality, the second sin of Israel? Any immorality going on in Corinth? Where, where was that? Remember what chapter or what the story was there? Chapter 5, right? A man has his father's wife. The rest of the church doesn't seem to care too much. Let it go. How about their testing God? This one's a little bit uh, more difficult because we could really fill in a lot of different things, but it seems to be that um, it would include maybe their misuse of freedom in chapter 8 or, or um, their lawsuits not trusting God for their provisions. Instead, of sue, instead they sue each other and, and um, bring reproach upon the name of God. How about their grumbling? Any grumbling going on in Corinth? Grumbling against the other people, grumbling against God. Right, chapter 1. One of the reasons Paul wrote the letter, Chloe told me, you know, Chloe's household told me there's, there's disputes going on among you. This is why I'm writing. This is not... How you're supposed to... Is Christ divided? Are you not His body? Right? That was chapter 1. And of course, they were also grumbling against Paul's leadership and his credentials. You know, maybe the reason you don't take money is because you're really not an apostle. Or maybe these other orators out here in Corinth, pagan, by the way, um, got a better corner on the market than you do, Paul. We don't need your help. We have the wisdom of society. We have the, the world's wisdom, Paul says. That's not the wisdom that, that's from God. And so these four sins, I think, are seen in Corinth. And that, I think, is the point that Paul is driving at without being explicit. And the point that Paul wants to make is that the major, if the majority of the nation 
if the majority of a nation, like Israel, who had all of these obvious and great and precious privileges from God, if they could, could subtly and then obviously turn away from God, then was it not possible with Corinth as well? There is this pitfall that they must avoid. And so how do they do that? How, how does Corinth avoid the pitfall of Israel? And if it's possible for Corinth, then, then what about us? How do we avoid the pitfall of Israel? And that's what verses 12 and 13 are there for. We avoid the pitfall of Israel, which was turning away from God despite having great privilege, by humbly depending on God, or we could actually split it up into two, by humility and trust. Humility and dependence. But I'm just kind of combining them together because they, they kind of fit. All right, verse 12. First, humility. We avoid turning away from God. We avoid the pitfall of Israel by humbly recognizing our potential to fall away. Paul here now applies the principle of Israel to the church at Corinth and he says, verse 12, Therefore, if you think that you are on stable ground, if you think that there is no potential for you to fall, then you had better watch out. Look at the command there. Take heed. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Ultimately, what kind of fall, what kind of pitfall was it for Israel? It wasn't that they just committed some sins that God was displeased with. It was actually the worst kind of sin that someone who had tasted of the blessings of God could commit, and that is the sin of apostasy. They turned away from the faith and fell into ruin and eternal destruction. So I think that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about apostasy. It's not that we can lose our salvation, right? There is eternal security. It is a clear teaching in Scripture from John 10 and Romans 8. But it's exactly like Hebrews talks about. There are going to be some who taste of the gifts of God, who experience church life, they, they enjoy some of the blessings that come with salvation, but they fall away. Why is that? Can God ignore idolatry? Someone who turns away from God to idolatry, can God ignore that? And that's what verse 12, I think, is pointing to. The, the, no idolater is beyond the reach of God's hand of judgment. There's no freedom. You know, we, Corinthians, and we might, talk about freedom, right? I have the freedom to do this. I have the freedom to do this. We don't have the freedom to do idolatry. In case you think you're standing firm, you better take heed that you don't fall because God will not tolerate idolatry. But in verse 13, Paul says that no repentant sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace. No repentant sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace. 
So no, no idolater is beyond the reach of God's judgment, but no repentant sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace. We avoid turning away from God. We avoid the pitfall of Israel by not only being humble, recognizing that, that we are weak and we need God, but here's how we recognize that. Here's how we stay humble. Is we regularly, continually, perseveringly depend upon God. Depend on Him that He will be faithful to deliver. So that in the time of true testing, we don't have to feel abandoned. Why? Verse 13 says, because God is faithful. So the divine alternative to falling, verse 12, and really the previous verses, is trusting in the faithfulness of God. That God, when He brings about and allows trials in our lives, that He will not give us more than we can endure, and He will always provide a means of escape. You see, Paul doesn't want Christians to think that if they come into various trials and temptations that that God in some way is judging them. That's the problem of Israel, right? They felt like, what are we doing out here in the wilderness? What, What did we do to deserve this kind of mistreatment from God? Paul's saying, as a Christian, you can't think that way. As a believer, you can't think that way. God is not judging you. Instead, you need to recognize that God is faithful. And He's given you what you can handle, and He's also giving a way of escape for four lies of Satan that are countered in this verse. Four lies of Satan that, that I think we tell ourselves. The first is, the first lie when it comes to temptation is, I'm the only one who struggles with the sin. What does the verse say? In response to that kind of lie that we tell ourselves or we listen to. I'm the only one that has to deal with this sin. No one else understands what this is like. What does the text say? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So here's the truth that I need to tell myself, according to this verse. I am not the only one who struggles with this sin. The second lie of Satan that's countered in this verse is that God is unfaithful. God in some way is, is mistreating me. But what does the text say? God is faithful. And there's a couple ways that He's going to be faithful, specifically with regard to our temptation we're going to see here. The third lie is, God allows me to be tempted beyond what I can handle. God gives me more that I can handle. That's why I had to give in to the sin. See, I, I had a, a, a bad hand, to use the playing card analogy, analogy right? I, I was given a raw deal. And so God's given me more than I can handle. And so I had, to, I had to do what I did there. We justify our sins, don't we? But what does the text say? That God actually limits the severity of my temptation. Could God allow me to be tempted more than I am being tempted now? Yes, He could. But He limits the severity of my temptation because He knows how much I can handle. That's the truth of the text. The fourth lie of Satan that's counted in this verse is that I've passed the point of no return with my temptation. I have to give in. There comes a time when 
you know, I've just made a series of choices and I've said yes to sin and yes to temptation and kind of, it's like a domino effect. So I get to this place where another temptation stares me right in the face and there is no return for me. I've just made too many bad choices back here so I can't say no to this temptation. Past the point of no return. And God says that's not true. God always provides an exit ramp when we're tempted. Do you believe these four things? That you are not the only one who struggles with the sin and temptation that you face? That God is faithful? That God limits the severity of your temptation? That God always gives you an extra ramp? So, the way that we avoid these this disastrous, catastrophic pitfall of Israel. We need to be humble, recognizing that we can't do this on our own. If we think we're okay, everything's okay spiritually, I'm going to be able to do this, then we better be careful that we don't fall. And then secondly, we need to be continually depending on God. God, I, I need you. This next temptation, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to come from. I don't know when it's going to come. And so we depend on God and trust in His promises like these four promises in this verse. All right, two principles, really one's an application, but we'll call it a principle, all right? First is don't presume upon God's grace. More of an application, but um, we could change to a principle by saying Christians shouldn't presume upon God's grace. How's that? There's a difference between presuming upon God's grace and depending upon God's grace. Okay, presumption is an unwarranted assumption. So an example might be Romans 6.1. I know that when sin increases, grace increases all the more, so I'm going to go on sinning so that grace may abound, grace may increase. That's a presumption, right? To say... I'm not going to worry about how I live my life because I know God's going to be there in the end. So I'm going to move off into... Think, think about Israel here and how this didn't work out for them in their thinking. You know, God's still going to be there so I can move off into idolatry, immorality, testing God. And God's going to be there in the end. It's okay. God's saying, no, I'm not. Not if you presume upon my grace. You see, the presumption is that God's response to sin is always grace. Think about that for a second. Is God's response to sin always grace? Praise God, it has been for us. But does God respond to non-repentant sin with grace? No, he explodes with he responds with explosive wrath, doesn't he? So we can't presume upon God's grace to just think, you know what, I can just live however I want and and God's gonna forgive me. Instead we need to depend upon God's grace. We need to recognize that we can't live without him. We must avoid the pitfall of Israel who had the presence of God. They'd seen his deliverance, they enjoyed the blessings of Moses' leadership. They 
They had been provided for through the manna and the water and the quail, but they still turned away from God. You might be thinking, well, maybe the application for us is, I wonder how much of a mixed multitude we have in our church. But that's not the point. It's not where we ought to be looking first. Or maybe at all. The point of Paul's exhortation is not for us to kind of search the hearts of our brother, but to search whose heart? Our own heart. So let me make this really clear. Partaking of the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper do not make an idolatrous, disobedient, faithless person immune from the ultimate judgment of God. Showing up 51 weeks out of a year to a good church does not make an idolatrous, disobedient, faithless person immune from the judgment of God. More simply, church membership, baptism, communion are no guarantee for eternal life. We don't have an eternal life detector. Our church can't fully know who is in and who is out. We do our best based on the, the, the uh, qualifications that are given in Scripture. Based on the externals that we see. But we can't see the heart, can we? So, a person could make it into church membership. They could be baptized. They could take communion every month. That doesn't guarantee eternal life. And so if this passage shakes you to the core, then, then do what Christians do when they hear passages like this, which is verses 12 and 13. They fall on God for grace. God, You are perfectly holy. And I'm utterly sinful. And even since I've trusted in Your promise to save, my life is far from where it needs to be. And, and I've presumed upon your grace too often. God, I acknowledge that. But to be merciful to me again. Trust in His promises. Cling tightly to Him. Obey Him. Depend on Him as you seek to eradicate your sin. Not continually holding on to your idolatry, immorality, grumbling, testing, and saying, well, hope God just responds to me with grace in the end putting that stuff away and saying, God, I, I, I have to get rid of that stuff. We'll destroy it. You cannot presume upon God's grace. God does not respond with grace to the proud. Does He? God is opposed to the proud. And He gives grace to the humble. So that that's, has to be us. We have to constantly be seeing ourselves in light of who God is and falling on Him for grace. Secondly, watch out for the subtle drift towards destruction. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letter, says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. You think Israel woke up one morning after the parting of the Red Sea, maybe the first or second day, and thought, you know what? I'd really like to turn away from God today. Or maybe not today, but, but let's just say like 
couple months down the road, I, I want to turn from God. And I wonder what kind of steps I need to take in order to turn away from God, to, in order to apostatize, to turn away from the faith. Think that's how it happened? No, they started their marathon of following God with excitement and hope. And then the race got kind of hard, didn't it? They took their eyes off the prize. They took their eyes off of God. And they subtly started to see this this race that I'm in here, it's not worth it. And so the answer to this subtle drift from the road towards heaven over to the road toward hell is to use the means of grace. We've already talked about verse 12 and 13, humility and depending on God. But how do we do this? How do we humbly depend upon God? Well, there's at least, I would say, uh, five ways that we can do that. First, God's grace that comes through His Word. Martin Luther said, I read through the Bible and the Bible did the rest. Second is God's grace that comes through prayer. That God answers the prayer of His children. God answers His prayer when we call to Him for help. God doesn't answer the prayers of the proud who, who are doing it for selfish motives or who aren't praying at all. The third means of grace is the church. The fact is that each of us is saved individually, but, but we don't make it to heaven individually. We make it to heaven with the help of a whole community of believers. And God has gifted us with a church to do that. Fourth kind of goes along with the first one, preaching. Sitting under the preaching of God's Word. God is gracious to us by allowing us to hear the Word read and explained. And then fifth, the Christian friend. Again, that goes along with the third one, the church. Someone who cares enough about us to speak truth into our lives. Someone who cares enough about us to say the hard right thing sometimes when we're starting to stray away from the faith. And, and if we want to be rescued from this natural drift, if we want to be rescued from this pitfall that is right up ahead, and all the while, God's sending rescue teams to come and help us, and we avoid them. Can't blame God. So you, God, I thought you were going to save me. I thought you were faithful. And I say, what about all those things that I gave you? What about the Word? What about prayer? What about your church? What about preaching? What about your friends that you ignored because... You didn't want to hear anything bad about yourself. So, the danger of drifting away, the danger of turning away, is possible. We must learn from Israel's negative example and Corinth's subtle drift was starting to happen. And we must instead be humble and fall upon God for grace.
Let's pray, and then we'll uh, take some prayer requests. Father, would you search our hearts tonight and know our innermost thoughts? Would you reveal to us where we have sinned? Lord, I know that there are seasons of time for me where I go days and sometimes weeks without bringing up specific sins, ignoring them, or or just deceiving myself into thinking it's not that big of a deal. So, Lord, would you reveal to me where... I have sinned against you. Would you bring to realization the hidden fault that I have and the overt ones as well? I pray that you do the same for each person here. I pray that, that we would humble ourselves and seek your face and, and turn from our wicked ways and know the joy of obedience and faith. Thank you for providing a way. Thank you that it's not um, a pathway of uncertainty but but it's, it, it is a pathway that is difficult and, and it requires for us to submit ourselves to you to help us to be willing to do that. Break us. Make our wills be subject to yours and accomplish your purpose through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.